Let's go. Hello and happy Wednesday. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. I'm Kyle Rizdal. It is What Do You Know? What do you know? No. What do you want to know Wednesday? The day we get to answer your questions. If you've got one for us that you'd like us to answer, the voicemails come to us at 508-UB-SMART. Email comes to us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. I should say in here somewhere, probably it's Wednesday, April the 19th. People like us to say that. Yes, they do. All right. Since we do know what day it is now, let's get to the first question, which is an email (laughs) from Garrett in Virginia, uh, which says... We hear a lot about economic forecasts from organizations like the IMF. Mm-hmm. And what I'm wondering is, what is their track record? How good are the IMF forecasts of global economic growth? Mr. Rizdal. Wow. Uh, okay. So the TLDR is that the IMF is about as good as everybody else. And I will explain. Forecasting, first of all, is really, really hard. And in point of fact, if you listen to Marketplace today, you heard Austin Goolsby, who's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. And he said to me in a session we did about eight or 10 years ago, um, I don't even know why people forecast anymore. The Federal Reserve shouldn't forecast. Nobody should forecast. Academicians don't forecast because it's really, really hard. So with that as the disclaimer, here's the deal. The IMF just came out with its uh, um, most recent um, economic outlook, world economic outlook, and they say the global economy is going to grow about 3% over the next uh, five years. Okay, And just for uh, a little more context, that's about the weakest medium-term forecast we've had since 1990. Okay, Now... How good are they? How good is the IMF, which is chock full of economists? The answer is that they're fine. In 2014, they did an analysis of their own forecasts, and they said they're, you know, about as good or about as bad as everybody else. Reporter Quartz did, in in essence, the same thing, looked at 1980 to 2021 uh, IMF forecasts using World Bank data and found that the IMF has been reasonably precise, right? And there are some okay. some caveats in there, periods leading up to or coming out of recession when, right, the business cycle kind of goes crazy and it's a little tough to predict what's going to happen. Um, they are less precise, right? Bloomberg did some analysis, found wide variation in the direction of magnitude of errors. Forecasting is really hard and you should take everything with a grain of salt. You should take CBO forecasts with a grain of salt. You should take congressional forecasts with a grain of salt. You should take everybody's forecasts with a grain of salt. Read a lot of them and you'll get the general directional sense. That's that's the answer, right? Nobody's okay. going to be spot on. How much do you, think, do you think the desire for forecasts is tied into the market desire to make bets? Mm. Really, really, really good question. I'd say they are closely correlated. I mean, look, that's why you have um, analysts coming out on Wall Street and saying earnings are going to be X pennies per share or dollars per share, right? And then when they miss, there's an opportunity to arbitrage that. Yeah, it's all... All right, this is going to be a little more pejorative than I mean to be, but it's kind of a little bit of a racket, right? It's kind of a little bit of a racket. You make your money making predictions and, you know, then you can make money whether those predictions are wrong or right. Right, I I just will never forget leading up to the financial crisis, all of these ratings agencies that had rated Mm. all of these mortgage-backed securities so high. And yet we still, we still rely on the same said ratings agencies Mm -hmm. to help us determine Mm -hmm. how solid an investment is. And they make their money either way. (laughs) 
They do indeed. But they do indeed. Totally true. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, where am yep. I? I lost my place. All right, here next, we go. Next question. Next one. Uh, it's uh, it's voicemail. Here we go. Or oh, make me smart. Tom from Minnesota with a post office question. Your recent Tom. story about first class postage rate increases got me thinking again. Why, here in the fifth decade oh. of the internet, we still have six day a week residential mail delivery? Wouldn't a Monday, Wednesday, Friday delivery schedule save us mail truck loads full of money and save us all a bunch of trips to the recycle bin? <laughs> what, you're not getting lovingly handwritten note cards in your mailbox yeah, right. every day? Surely that's all that's in there, not junk mail. Right. Uh, anyway, so I guess to answer this question first, we need to know why we even have a six-day mail delivery service. And it's because the law says we do. It, it's not exactly clear when this practice is start, started. I have a, a friend who works for the post office. I'll, I'll ask her again later. But... According at least to the Congressional Research Service, it appears that the six-day delivery was not legally required until fiscal year 1981, which is when Congress put language in requiring that USPS mm. did a six-day delivery, and that was in the appropriations for uh, their budget that year. There have been indeed proposals over the years to reduce the number of delivery days from six to five in order to save money, but when the experts sort of run the numbers on this, they figure out that, yes, the move would save billions of dollars, but not enough billions of dollars to solve the USPS's, 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 mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. yes, financial problems. Last year, uh, President Biden signed a bill into law that further cemented the six-day-a-week delivery. And Congress is the one that has the power to cut the number of days that the Postal Service would deliver the mail. But... That probably wouldn't go over well with constituents because we do love our post office. Uh, <laughs> According oh, yeah. to a 2023 uh, Pew Research Center poll, 77% of Americans report having a favorable opinion of the Postal Service. And given all the other things that members of Congress have to do that constituents <laughs> don't like, that's just sort of like picking an unnecessary fight. Also... Um, if you think about the Postal Service Union, the letter carriers unions, um, they will definitely put up a big fight if the days were going to be cut back. And if we think watching, you know, people on strike in France and in Europe is bad, imagine if every single letter carrier in America got mad. Just think about right. that. Right. Yeah. Totally. Uh Okay, our next question comes to us from Liz, who writes, the Federal Reserve reports it is it is operating at a loss for the first time since 1915. Can you make me smart about the economic implications of this? This has you written hmm. all over it, Kai. So, so this is actually a, a super, super, super complicated question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simplify as best I can. The Federal Reserve is uh, a, an independent agency of the federal government. It is also self-funding, and it funds itself through its open market operations by its buying and selling of bonds and securities. And what has been happening for a very, very, very long time with interest rates as low as they have been is that the Federal Reserve, which takes deposits from member banks, right? It takes and holds money on deposit for uh, uh, banks. It has not had to pay a lot of interest on those 
deposits, right? It's just like when you go to your bank and you give them $100 and they pay you, you know, a tenth of a percent interest or whatever it is, and you get back $100 and one cent at the end of uh, at the end of your uh, period of, of deposit. Federal Reserve does the same thing. And for a very, very, very long time, the amount of interest it was paying on the deposits it held for banks was less than the interest it was getting on the securities it owns. Remember, we've talked many times about the Federal Reserve actually buying bonds in the open market to try to control mm-hmm. interest rates, specifically long-term interest right. rates, right? And for a very long time, it was paying less than in interest than it was earning in interest. And so it funded its own operations and remitted the remainder, which was in the billions of dollars every year, to the Treasury, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Now, with the Fed having raised rates, if you remember Silicon Valley Bank, the challenge for Silicon Valley Bank was that they didn't manage their interest rate risk, right? They took their depositors' money, they went out and bought, bought really long-dated U.S. Treasury bonds that yielded, at the time, 1%, right? But then, as the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates, you could buy long-dated federal bonds that were yielding 5%, and those bonds were much more valuable. The Federal Reserve did avert, has a version of the same thing happening to it. Now, it, because it has raised interest rates, it has to pay more interest on the, on the deposits it has from banks. But all of those bonds that it bought during quantitative easing, the $9 trillion in mortgage-backed securities and federal debt that it bought, yield really low rates. And so it's now on the other end of its... Uh, equation. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. while the Fed is not making billions of dollars, the accounting trick of the Fed uh, uh, not being able to remit that money to the Treasury Department is a little complicated. Because the Fed is the Fed, Jay Powell, using the secret chairman of the Fed keyboard that he keeps in his office, can create money at any time. Right? So, what Mm -hmm. they do at the Fed for accounting purposes is they basically make a little check mark next to the deficit that they have in any given year that they're not making money, and they say, okay, we're going to owe it to you. And it's called a deferred asset because at some point, the interest rate spread is going to change, and the Fed's going to start making money again, and they're going to start sending money to the Treasury again, right? So, the net actual Mm -hmm. effect is nothing, truly. Even though... We are currently surpassed <laughs> the debt limit and Treasury yeah. is going through yeah. extraordinary measures. Doesn't yep. it matter that the Fed is not sending that money to Treasury at this particular moment in time? The, the short answer is no. The longer answer is that there is money, there is uh, debt uh, listed on the federal balance sheet that does not count toward the debt limit. And this is in that okay. pile. Okay, I was just thinking. So that it's a, it's, it's might a really good, interesting, curious question. To get those question. checks about now. Yeah. Oh, they sure. <laughs> yeah, look, Janet Yellen, I'm sure would be like, "Hey, Jay, give me the money," but but it doesn't count. Anyway. Yeah. So, that's what happens. It's really interesting, though. I mean, the Fed is kind of just as an institution. The Fed is kind of interesting the way it works. Yeah, it's so fascinating, and and yeah. that was actually really clear. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, if you're interested in the Fed, by the way, Gina Smilek's new book, it's called, um, God, God, what's it called? What's it called? Uh, Limitless. Oh, it's on my shelf downstairs. <laughs> Limitless. It's really good. It talks a lot about the Fed in history. It doesn't talk about the Fed's, you know, operations. But anyway. Okay. Last question of the day. It's an email. Pam, uh, 
She wants to know this. Has anybody, oh, this is interesting. Has anybody calculated the carbon footprint of the space economy? I have loved space since the first Russian dog went into space. Pam, you are dating yourself. But I find it less and less defensible (laughs) as the climate crisis progresses. Can you make me smart about what climate impact these programs are having here and now? Great question. (laughs) Why did you even have to go there, man? Come on. (laughs) Come on. Okay. Uh, Relative to, because I mean, Sure. It definitely has emissions. It definitely, like, it's a big rocket burning stuff every time there's a launch. So, yes, it matters. However, relative to the aviation industry, the carbon footprint of space travel is actually pretty small. It totals about 1% of the amount of fossil fuels Hmm. burned by planes each year. But the environmental impact is, of course, growing as interest in space faring and space exploration and space tourism increases. So for the past two decades, you know, scientists didn't really worry much about studying the emissions of spaceflight because there just weren't that many rockets going into space, you know. During the space race, when, you know, the U.S. and Russia were trying to, like, outdo each other with the rockets and everything, rocket launch attempts peaked at 139 in 1967. Mm. But then that number went down as the Cold War relaxed. And so between about 2000 and 2010, the average number of launches stagnated at around 70 launches per year. But last year a record-breaking 180 successful rocket launches went into orbit. And I think we can totally expect that number to keep going up. One space science expert predicted that the number of annual launches and therefore emissions is going to grow 10 times higher in the next decade or two. So given that, you do, it, it it is time to start thinking about the emissions of these things. So In general, a rocket launch emits about 200 to 300 tons of carbon dioxide. But the scientists who look at this say it's a lot less about how much CO2 is emitted and more about how and sometimes where it's being released in the atmosphere. So spacecrafts send emissions straight into the upper parts of the atmosphere where they can actually have even Mm. more significant impact on global warming and linger for long periods of time because you don't necessarily, you know, like have the Hmm. wind dispersing Mm -hmm. things up there. Mm -hmm. Um, Plus, a rocket launch's environmental impact also depends on the type of fuel being used. So the most common propellants are indeed carbon-based, but several space space travel companies are experimenting with low-carbon fuels. So, for example, when Jeff Bezos traveled to space in a Blue Origin spacecraft, it actually didn't release any carbon dioxide, which is because it ran on a fuel made of liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, not exactly water, even though that may be where your brain jumped. But anyway, the Blue Origin launch uh, released a huge amount of water vapor afterwards, (laughs) which can Hmm. damage the ozone layer and impact parts of the atmosphere that are closest to space. So yeah, this is it's it's a valid question. So right now, it's minuscule compared to the CO2 emissions of, you know, your average plane travel for, mm-hmm. you know, the world. But, you know, as as it picks up, it's it's going to mm-hmm. be meaningful. So hopefully we get this fuel situation uh, sorted out soonish. There there's got to be some smart startup founder who's thinking about this, right? 
It's got to be. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. I was trying to find. Oh, here it is. There was a NASA news release uh, I got today that um, says that NASA is creating an in-space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing consortium, which is going mm. to be a group that's going to, um, you know, be focused on making right. in-space capabilities for maintaining architectures and mission life cycles and extend the life of spacecrafts in space, which is something that's going to need to happen and kind of relates to the convo we were having yesterday about all of the infrastructure that has to be put in place before we do all of the big moonshot slash Mars shot stuff. Exactly. Which is coming. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Okay, that is it for today. But before we go, uh, one more gratuitous ask about the Webby Awards, (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I have no shame. We only have one day left to vote for the Webby Awards. And so in case you missed it, Make Me Smart has been nominated in the business category. And the Webby Awards are sort of like the People's Choice Awards uh, for the best of the Internet. We're in second place right now, just barely, and we could really use your help to win. So if you haven't yet, we'd really appreciate it if you could log on to the Webby website and vote for us. Million Bazillion is also up in its category, and you can vote for us by going to marketplace.org slash vote MMS. And again, the voting ends tomorrow, April 20th, and we would appreciate your support. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting, our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast. And Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. Bam. Perfect time. Bam.